Lord, once again, we thank you so much that your word is living and active. Lord, that it is sharper than two-edged sword. And we thank you that there are words that we need to pay close attention to this morning. And we pray that your spirit will come and fill me up, that I may speak the word of truth with confidence and with conviction. But also we pray that you'll send down your spirit upon this congregation, that you'll give them listening hearts, listening minds, that your words may be planted in their hearts and may bear fruit um, in their lives in, 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 in the coming week and months and years. And we pray that you will speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I talked to a person this uh, week who was arrested and jailed for something this past year. He talked about his addiction, and he talked about how it was a thing of God's judgment. But he also talked about it as a sign of God's grace, that as he was judged, he had an opportunity to look to God. And as he looked to God, how God showered him with grace. And he talked about how without that sign of judgment, he said he doesn't know where he would have ended up. But because he was arrested, he got, the, he got to experience God's grace. And as I was hearing this testimony, I thought to myself, well, this is the story of judges, isn't it? Do you remember the cycle of judges, A, B, C, D? Uh, a, it starts out with the apostasy uh, as people abandon their faith in God and worship idols. And then it goes into B, uh, banishment. God banishes them into the hands of uh, the enemies. And because God banishes them, they cry out. That's the C. They cry out to God for help. And in that crying out, God hears their crying out and delivers them. That's the D. And our story of Samson starts familiarly with the A, apostasy. It starts with people abandoning their faith. See verse 1. Again, uh, Again, Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because, God, because they, do, they do evil, God banishes them into the hands of Philistines for 40 years. This is actually twice um, longer than the longest punishment that they received before, which was 20 years. And then later on, we see the deliverance and how God uh, raises up this imperfect deliverer, Samson. But there is something abnormal about this cycle. The A, B, and D are there, but C isn't there in this cycle. They don't cry out. Usually, as God banishes them into the hands of their enemies, people cry out. But here, there's no hint of people crying out to God. There's no crying out. And I told you a while ago that Book of Judges repeats this cycle again and again. But actually, it's not a normal cycle. It's not the same cycle that gets repeated. In fact, it's a downward spiral. It goes down and down, and when we come to Samson's story, we see how far, how lost the Israelites are when it comes to the story of Samson. We see they, they are near the rock bottom. And I think what's implied here is that after so many years of these foreign rule, they have gotten used to the Philistines. They've become one of them. 
They don't see anything wrong with living among the idols. They don't see anything wrong um, with living like one of them. They don't realize that, that they have been set apart by God to be a nation that's to be holy, to live their lives differently, to point people to God. They've lost their, their, their sight. They don't cry out. They've accepted it as part of their reality and have become acclimated to their sins. They don't cry out. So here's the first point. I think sin is deceptive. Sin is deceptive and dangerous because it lures us into self-deception, into thinking that sin is not sin, that sin is okay. Let me tell you what I mean. Um, Recently, I've watched a good bit of Friends. You might not approve of this, and sometimes I castigate myself for doing this too. <laughs> but I, I've been watching Friends, at the TV show, um, and I've long accepted the fact that premarital sex on TV is just an accepted reality. People just have sex on, uh, uh, in TV, in the media, and that's an accepted part of the reality. But um, if you think about why, why is this, um, I think it's one of the reasons uh, why we accept this as part of our reality is just because it is part of our reality. It's all around us. In fact, um, I've read this uh, article recently that, that said 80% of evangelicals, 80% of non-married evangelicals uh, engage in premarital sex. We want to believe that this is okay. But what shocked me most about the friends is actually pornography. How men and uh, women in the show watch pornography together, and there's also there's no shame in this. This is part of the accepted reality in in the show Friends. But it's not just a, a sexual sins. Obviously, uh, more well in many ways, I think in in the society of Hong Kong, in the online society that we live in, things that are not okay are being accepted as part of our reality, like downloading illegal, uh, illegally music or movies, uh, even books that are available there. That's all around us. And in Hong Kong, once again, greed is part of our reality too, isn't it? In fact, greed is probably one of the biggest problems in this society, in the world. Um, Michael Sandel, the Harvard philosophy professor, um, in, in his interview, talked about how this society used to have market, market economy. So there was the society and there was a market economy. Uh, we used money to buy things. Um, but... He then talked a bit about how it's now a market society, how money has pervaded at every part of our life, that we measure things that we didn't measure with money with money these days. So if you think about it, I think it wasn't possible really to measure one's love for another person. But now it's measured by how much money we spent on the engagement ring how expensive our gifts are. So if you receive something that is cheap, you go, well, why don't you love me? Why don't you spend more money on me? Love is now gauged by how much money we spend on each other. Mammon rules the society. Market society has come. And we don't cry out. We don't cry out. Because we're used to this way of living. Because the world around, around us lives like this. And we have become part of it. And we've often lose perspective of what is sin and what it's not. The sin, I think, is very then important how sin is defined. 
As you know, the last words of the book of Judges, the last words of um, the book of Judges uh, ends with this. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's the ESV translation. But we can't trust what's good in our We can't trust our eyes always. Yes, it is true that we are created in God's image, that we, there is a moral compass that's in us that guides us and points us into the right direction. But sometimes we can get into self-deception, not just individual self-deception, but uh, a self-deception in a society level, societal deception, self-deception. Sin does not ultimately consist of violating our own conscience, conscience not just violating the society's norm, but it is a violation of God's will for us. That's why in verse 1, it starts with that reminder that the Israelites did evil in God's eyes. They lived, what was good, uh, they lived according to what was good in their eyes, but that was not good in God's eyes. And that is the key to defining sin, God is our maker. God knows us the best. God has that perspective that's outside of our experience or the society's experience. God has the timeless perspective on sin that we cannot have and the one that we often don't want, if we're honest. No matter how we might feel about our life in our own eyes, in our parents' eyes, our friends' eyes, even our pastor's eyes, we must constantly look into the revealed word of God, how God has revealed himself in the scriptures, who he is and who we are in the light of it. And we must look and discern what God thinks about things and what God has revealed. So that aberration, that, 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 that they didn't cry out, that's astonishing. That they have gotten so used to their sin, that you're so used to being part of that society, that they don't cry out. But actually, the story doesn't end there. But God did, does still raise up a deliverer, doesn't he? That's the astonishing thing about God. Even as people don't cry out, even as people are completely lost, God still raises up a deliverer. God, who is faithful to his promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, repeated again and again throughout the Old Testament, God is faithful to that promise, and God will save his people. People forget him, but God does not forget his people. So God sends the angel of Yahweh, to Manoah's wife. Manoah, who I think is almost a metaphor for Israel, she's fruitless. She's unable to give birth, um, as we're told in verses 2 and 3. She's mired in shame because in that culture, not being able to give birth to children um, brings you shame and shame to the family. And she could not save herself out of that shame. She could not deliver herself out of that shame. So God comes. And God brings this good news to her and through her to the wider community of Israel. God will deliver his people. So God is gracious. God is faithful. God is gracious. 
And we learn about God and sin here. But also, I think on top of that, um, this passage teaches us about, uh, us about how God guides us and how to live our lives as well. Remember how the angel of Yahweh appears to guide this family. He first appears to Manoah's wife um, and tells her that she will give birth to a son and that son should be set apart as a Nazarite. Nazarite simply means set apart or chosen, and Nazarite vows are limited, uh, are outlined in Numbers chapter 6, and it has three main distinctives. Uh, It's not so important for us uh, today, but actually, as we hear the story of Samson, um, we'll see how he violates all these these, uh, distinctives. It will become important to us, but three things. one, Nazarites are not supposed to cut their hair um, during the duration of their vow. And number two, they are supposed to not touch anything, um, any alcohol or any wine um, or any other sort of uh, vine uh, products, grape products. And number three, he's, uh, they're not supposed to touch anything that is dead to defile themselves. And these vows could be taken for a period of time, for 40 days or whatever the time, and take the vow. And we see actually Apostle Paul doing it a couple of times in his ministry. Uh, or you can, set, you, can do, you can take this vow for a lifetime. And some people do that, Samuel uh, notably, and also uh, John the Baptist um, t- takes those uh, vows upon themselves as well. And these uh, uh, vows were to signify um, that they were set apart, that they were going to live their lives differently from the rest of the world, that these are, they're they're markers. There isn't, there is almost, I think in some ways, some arbitrariness um, to these rules. Um, Why shouldn't we cut our hairs? You know, things like that. But what it's saying is that they are going to live their lives differently for God for a time period or for the rest of their life. That's what it signifies, that, um, that we, it's a reminder that we can't approach God, the, this holy God, as we are, that we must be different as we come to approach God. So the angel of Yahweh appears to the mother and essentially tells her um, that the child is going to be set apart from birth. So she's asked not to uh, drink fermented drinks and things like that. So she receives these instructions in verses 2 to 5. But then she then goes to her husband. She says to Manoah, the angel of God has appeared to me and he said these things. So he tells her. So the husband, Manoah, then prays to Yahweh. And um, as I was reading this, some commentaries think that the husband lacked faith. But I don't think this is the case because when we pay attention to what he asks, he seems to believe his wife. He has faith that this will happen. But then he wants further revelation. He wants more instruction because he asked in verse 8, um, that he, he says, could you come, could you send the, the, the man of God again and add to give us instruction on how to raise this child? And then God hears this prayer and sends the angel of Yahweh again. He first appears to the wife, and the wife goes and gets Manoah, and Manoah talks to the angel of Yahweh. He asks um, about the rule that will govern the boy's life and his work. And that's what he was asking for, right? He was going to be born. How am I supposed to raise him? Um, The rule that will govern the, the boy's life and work. And the angel of Yahweh actually doesn't add anything. 
to the instruction that had given um, that, that he gave to the wife. He just essentially repeats the Nazarite vow. Now, question is then, why does the angel of Yahweh appear if he's not going to reveal anything new? The father wanted further instruction. How am I supposed to raise this boy? What will govern the, his, his life and work? But the, uh, the angel appears and repeats the same information that he had given to the wife. He seems to want more information from the angel of Yahweh. And so he says, well, why don't you stay here? Let me prepare a goat uh, for you. The angel of Yahweh says then, the food should be sacrificed to Yahweh God. Manoah then asks a bit later in verse 17, still grasping for more information. He goes, what's your name? What's your name in verse 17? Of course, he's asking, um, because someone asking somebody for somebody's name is like asking, who are you? Who are you? And the angel of Yahweh replies that it is beyond his understanding. It's too wonderful uh, for him. And he illustrates this as the offering is put on the rock and grain and the goat are being offered. And in the flames, the angel of Yahweh goes up. He ascends into heaven in in that blazing fire. And both Manoah and his wife understand immediately what is going on. They finally see the angel of Yahweh is not simply a man. His wife cried out that they have seen God in verse 22. I don't have time to go into all the details, um, but angel of Yahweh in the Old Testament doesn't seem to be an ordinary angel. Many Christians for a long time have said that angel of Yahweh is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. As angel of Yahweh appears, it's Christ who appears. I don't think we can say for sure whether that is true, that this is somehow speaking of Jesus Christ. Uh, But I think it is certain that in the Old Testament, when the angel of Yahweh appears, that people seem to think that they have seen something more than just an angel. Or uh, that, that, that they've seen Yahweh himself, that he represented Yahweh somehow. They are sure that they have seen God here in this offering And in this passage, we are assured that they have seen God. There is no correction there. God shows himself to be God in this offering. So once again, I go back to the question. Why did the angel of Yahweh appear? They asked for more information. Did they get any more information? And the answer is yes. Although they didn't get any more instructions, They didn't get detailed instructions of how to raise the boy. They got a revelation of God himself. God appeared to them. God's glory appeared to them. I think as we live our lives, often we do something that's similar to Manoah. We have this revelation, the Bible, um, which is, once again, God's revelation throughout the history And that ought to be enough. But we want more instruction. We want more instruction, detailed instruction on how to live our lives. We want further guidance. So we often ask for more instruction that's specifically for us. And when Manoah asked for instructions, he didn't get it. God said to the worried couple, however, I am with you. I am with you. I will give myself to you. God gave them what they needed, which was an assurance 
of God Himself, that the instruction came from Him. And that is much more valuable than thousands of detailed instructions that they could have gotten. Because these rules would not have been sufficient in guiding the boy. How much instruction would they need in order to raise Samson the right way? Only a deep understanding of who, who God is and who he is would have been sufficient. And that's how God guides. God assures us that he is with us by showing himself. In fact, I think that's where faith comes in as well. Faith is action based on, uh, on what we know about God through Christ and the scriptures. It's trusting in the goodness of God and in his promises of God and his presence with us and acting on it. You see, when this revelation happened, when God shows himself, what happens to Manoah, the father? He's paralyzed. He doubts God's goodness. He thinks, we're going to die, in verse 22, he shouts. We're doomed to die since we have seen God. But in contrast, look at his wife. His wife is able to break out of that immobilized state by, um, not because of some blind faith, but because she's able to reason based on God's self-revelation. She says in verse 23, if Yahweh had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted their, our offering or tell them anything. The thing is, if the, the, um, the wife has this promise, has this, uh, uh, this revelation, she trusts in the goodness of Yahweh and she reasons and she acts. What we really need to do is, a lot of times, take this woman's example in our life. Once again, we often think that God's guidance will come through some supernatural means, and, and, but this woman reasons based on the revelation that she already received. And it's that simple, but I think we often don't do this, partly, I think, because there is an anti-intellectual bias in many religions, in, including Christianity. It's in many people's Christianity. And the famous doctor preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, says this about the woman. This is what he says. Precise thinking and definition have been at serious discount. People don't do this, he says. Seeing and observing her husband's collapse, his fear and his whimpering, and the listening to his foreboding of evil, his dark prophecies and his doubting of the goodness of God, she doesn't cry out or shout. She thinks. She reasons, she ponders the matter, and with magnificent logic, she arrives at the only conclusion that is really valid. Samson's wife shows us that faith is not absence of thinking, but it's thinking and acting on basis of God's promises, God's revelation, and trusting in the goodness of God and his being with us and acting on it. We seek guidance like one of the people in the Old Testament. And God has revealed himself in the Old Testament, rules upon rules, many, many rules. And that was necessary in many ways. But there is something childish, childish about that sort of revelation, if you think about it, because that's how you would guide a child. When you take a child, when you have a child, you have to give detailed instructions on how to, uh, for, for the child to, uh, what, what to do and what not to do. But as they grow up, you want them to think for themselves. 
Uh, when Jesus came, he told us that the laws can be summarized, that there are principles that we can drive out of those rules. And that's a better way of guiding the children. They need to think for themselves based on that revelation, instructions, and act on them. And not only that, there, Manoah's wife saw the angel of God, maybe um, Christ himself, ascending in the blazing fire. And that was the final sort of ultimate instruction for them. And although we weren't there, we have the testament to the appearance of the fullness of God, God becoming a human being. And we have the assurance of his ultimate goodness, the goodness of God on the cross of Jesus Christ. We have the assurance of his being with us because we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, because God pours out his spirit amongst us. He is with us. Faith is reasoning based on these revelations and acting on them. And I pray that as we go, that we'll be able to trust God, think and reason, and live our lives in the light of all those. Let's pray.